Sunday, 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 right here on twitch.tv slash Echoplex Media. It's the Plex, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Pacific and on into red light. We have the worst news in the week that no one else will cover. The Plex has it all. Conspiracy, right-wing nut jobs, Christian extremism, and Madison Star Moon. Tune in every Sunday at 7 p.m. Pacific at twitch.tv slash Echoplex Media and find our full schedule at echoplexmedia.com. Now I'm talking about the Echoplex patrols over here, guys. They're ascended masters. I'm white and I've got everything I need. No one clutches their purses when they're in a room alone with me. And I can drive for any neighborhood I please. At any hour, and the police don't do a thing. So if I see a penny on the ground, I leave it alone and fucking flip it. I'm a straight white male in America. I got everything I need. I'm a guy getting paid more than a girl with a degree. And I can walk down the streets after dark, no one wants to rape me. And I can get a girl pregnant and just as easily flee. Just like my straight white male dad did to me. So if I see a penny on the ground, I leave it alone and fucking flip it. I'm a straight white male in America. I've got all the luck I need. I've got a pile of broken mirrors and I'm walking under ladders and I'm spilling tons of salt. But to me that doesn't matter because my skin and my gender and my orientation are the best things to have if you live in this nation. I recommend it highly. Everybody, welcome to the Intellectual Dollar Tree. We do the show live every Wednesday, 7 p.m. Pacific, twitch.tv slash Echoplex Media. And of course, streaming live on our IceCast server at eplex.xyz. I'm producer Dave. You can find me on Grinder, and it looks like we've also found HK. What's up? I'm HK Perrin, and you can no longer find me in a freaking jury box. Oh, that's good. That's good. Uh, I've had jury duty for the past month. Uh, yikes yeah so we're going to talk about that in the post game yeah we'll do it we'll do a little on that during the post game for sure i also have some good content lined up for the post game glad to have you back thank you i'm so glad to be back so if anybody's uh sort of new to the podcast hk has been the co-host of this podcast since like two or three episode two or three and um yeah because we got we caught a bunch of new uh caught a bunch of new viewers recently um a couple reasons one my interview with chris cavanaugh um caught us a bunch of new uh listeners viewers and uh Two, I went on um, the, well, it, it's caught us some new Twitter followers anyway. I went on, uh, If You Catch My Grift, is a show about grifters, and we did an episode on David Miscavige, the leader of the Church of Scientology, and that came out really well. I was super impressed with that, and I'm going to have those guys on probably for some late night 
some night twitch uh because they, they were pretty funny mm-hmm. i liked those guys they were super cool uh, if you want to catch that, you just go to, if you catch my Griff podcast, just find it on any podcatcher. You can go ahead and grab that. Uh, live viewers, just real quick. Um, <clears throat> for Wednesdays and Sundays, uh, the chat overlay uh, is gone during the podcast recording part of the show. Um, just got some feedback from some people that it can sometimes be distracting. So like on, on YouTube and whatnot. So I figured I'd, you know. If it was if it was just one person, I'd have ignored it. But it was two people in the same week, so I was like, "Well, nobody even watches our fucking YouTube channel." So <laughs> I, that's like a huge yeah, part uh, of our audience. I think that's a good decision. So don't worry, the chat overlay will be back up during red light. And if you're listening to the podcast, you don't know what the hell I'm talking about, and that's fine. You're not here for this uh, stuff. You don't care that much about the Twitch stuff. <laughs> Otherwise, you've followed us on Twitch all the times we asked. Uh, big shout out, by the way, to Drake from our community. Uh, he purchased us an item from our Amazon wish list for the move in the new studio build. We have some uh, studio lights. Um, awesome. They're, they're those. They're DMX programmable, so we can, we're going to buy a, a lo- low cost uh, mixer for them, so that we can just change the colors in the studio from a little mixer, same way we change the properties of the audio with a mixer. Um, that mixer is also on our wish list. You can find our Amazon wish list at echoplexmedia.com slash support along with other ways to support this project. And if you can't support us monetarily, monetarily, or you just have ethical issues with giving me an HK money just more broadly, you can share the, uh, you can share this fucking show with your friends. You can share the live stream, share the pod, tell people about it, that kind of stuff. So you're back HK and we're not doing Jordy Pete and we're not doing Sam Harris. We're doing Michael Shermer. Oh no. He interviewed Andrew Yang. That's weird. Um, well, no, because they're like not, this thing is called not left, not right forward. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess they both are kind of like, um, it's weird. I, I feel like the people who like Andrew Yang on the left don't really know a lot about him. And the people who like him on the right also don't really know a lot about him. Or maybe they know enough about him to know that like he'll dog whistle at them. Yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, that's the thing is that he'll, you know, Andrew Yang and there'll be some culture war shit in this. I'm sure. In fact, it might just be wall to wall culture war. Um, so anyway, without any further ado, here is Michael Shermer and Andrew Yang. I don't know, talking about enlightened centrism or what the fuck ever. Hello everyone. Michael Shermer here for the Michael Shermer show. Brought to you by Wondrium. Wondrium is a series of college-level audio and video. That's nice, Michael. Gene is, you know, cool. Uh, I will never use it because good. they sponsored you. Subscribe for an annual plan trial plus a twenty percent. Hit it. I'll come back to that in a second. This is the course. Is I feel like if you sponsor a sex pests show, model, I'm not going to buy your product. <laughs> he gave a lot of thought. Sex pests that. sometimes is uh, putting uh, it mildly too, con- considering some of the reports. What happens uh, yeah. when things don't go so well, like for poor Job? Stoicism uh, to a God, stoicism. God, John Stewart. Fucking, if somebody has stoicism in their Twitter profile, you know they're they're just trying to pop off at the N word. Lectures on Nietzsche, but a couple on Gandhi and a couple on 42. Anyway. Uh, just having fun with that because I love this company. I love these courses. The course, I'll take the whole thing, but usually I just... Uh, it's a long ad. N-D-R-I-U-N, 20% off the end. 
Here's our next episode. We are live. Hi, everyone. It's Michael Shermer here for The Michael Shermer Show. My guest today needs no introduction, but I will introduce him anyway. He is Andrew Yang, the 2020 Democratic presidential candidate and a 2021 candidate for mayor of New York City. Named by President go? Obama as a presidential ambassador <laughs> of global entrepreneurship. He's the founder of Humanity Forward and Venture for America. He's a venture capitalist. New York Times bestseller book, bestselling book, The War on Normal People, helped introduce the idea of universal basic income into the political mainstream. His new book is Forward, Notes on the Future but his, of Our Democracy. Okay, his so like I really people. like the idea of universal basic income, but Andrew Yang's version of it is the worst version you could possibly think of. Right. It's a regress. It's a regressive. What it will do, it would replace the benefits that people are getting, not even always replace them entirely, depending on what kind of benefits people are getting. And then people who don't need government benefits or aren't taking government benefits, just pocket the money. Yep. It's the worst one. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to yeah. get too, too into the weeds about universal basic income, but we have talked about it in the past. And I think you and me are in the same place. We're, it, we're with it after things like a housing guarantee and universal health care. Yes. After. Yeah, you shouldn't have to spend the audition, uh, like the pittance that the government is giving you on your housing. Andrew, and I love that you read it because that brings so much more life into the argument. So I don't know if you recall, you and I met in the green room at a, at a theater in Montreal when Steven Pinker and I were doing a in conversation. Oh, yikes. You had just uh, announced your candidacy. Do you recall that? I think that must have been 2019. I, I do. I remember that. That was a good night. Uh, it was great to meet you and Stephen. Yeah, so, um, you know, Steve and I are, you know, kind of push this idea of moral progress and material progress over the centuries. But, of course, there's always short-term downturns. So let me read this little portion of your introduction of your new book, Forward. My second goal with this book is to lay out some of the forces that are holding us back. These forces go far beyond the broken economy I highlighted in my last book. We're witnessing a cascade of crises from a pandemic to a punitive economy to police brutality to the selling of our attention and digital data to the highest bidders. Our democratic institutions are faltering right and left, and our systems are not designed for speed or significant change. Trust is fading. Democracy itself is losing legitimacy. Our political system is a fixed duopoly that will want to move slowly, if at all. Our leaders are rewarded based not on solving problems, but on accruing resources and attaining office. Media companies have their own set of incentives that lead them to operate on a different wavelength from most of the American people. Local news is dying, and social media is driving our everyday discourse and our mental health to volatile extremes. These are all crises, and they are all linked in ways we will unpack in the pages ahead. Okay, <laughs> so how do you square those? You know, we have made a lot of material and moral progress over the centuries, and yet it does seem like everything you said there is true. Yeah, you know, what's, what's funny, Michael, is... Um, I've laid out in my last two books relatively bleak prognoses for what lies ahead in American life. Um, but most Americans are good if you just wander around the country, as I have over the last number of years. People are cordial and define good things to themselves and their families. Well, and I, I mean, I, that's not. And the other thing is, like, it's just like a platitude, right? Like, most Americans are good is like a like, like most people. But the thing is, most people aren't good. They're fucking good and bad and fucking catch people on a different day and you're going to get a different version of them because of their their daily experience or just whether or not they slept well or you know everybody's kind of a yeah. hodgepodge of good bad and like fucking morally ambiguous i don't think anyone is always good or always bad people are generally nice to him i guess but that's you know 
if you don't know somebody, you're generally just going to be either kind or indifferent to them. There's no reason to just be mean to people. It doesn't, even a mean person is just, is going to open the door for you or, so, or you know what I mean? They might hold the door for you as you're going into a, into a, into a shop or something, you know, so weird. Uh, so how to square that, as you say. And one of the things I lay out in my books is that we have several layers of perverse incentives that are pitting us against each other. As we're having this conversation, we are more polarized as a country than we ever have been. I would agree, though, that most people believe they are good. Sure. And most people believe their neighbors are generally good unless they like really don't get along. Democrats and Republicans yeah. view the other side as corrupt and a threat to the country, which I'm going to suggest is a climate where you can do awful things and feel like they're justified. Uh, and that's because we have these political incentives that push legislators to the sides. Uh, they just need to placate or please 10% of the most extreme voters in their party to hold on to office. That's how you wind up with a 94% incumbent reelection rate, even though Congress's overall approval rate is something like 19%. So the problem is, so yeah, Congress's overall approval rating is 19%, but when you go to a district and you ask about the, their congressperson, that number jumps a lot from 19%. Yeah. Like most people hate every other congressperson except theirs. Right. And that's because, you know, otherwise they, that person couldn't probably win in that district if people didn't have like, you know, at least a 50, 50 ish percent approval rating of them. And if it drops under 50, they about to lose. Yeah. And then, you know, you exacerbate that problem with the problem of gerrymandering where, you know, if that person is in charge of drawing their, the map of their voters, well, not that person general, it depends if you're the, if, if you're the same party as the party in power, right? Yeah. In the state, because the, the drawn at the state level, not by, not by federal representatives. <clears throat> But yeah, gerrymandering is a problem. This country is a gerrymander. That's not going to come up here at all. Watch. Also, it's an hour. We're probably not going to get through all of it. But you're going to hang on to office as long as you stay in your camp. And then the media organizations further divide us into ideological camps. And then social media pours gasoline on the whole thing. So you have these massive forces in American life that are making us crazy, making us hate each other, making true governing next to impossible. But you still have by and large, good people if you meet them face-to-face. -face. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I, think I agree with like some of the things that. he said there, but I, I feel like there are much bigger problems than what he laid out. Like, right. Right. And just probably one of the biggest problems, to his credit, he said media, and I feel like the 24-hour news cycle and social media is creating like a huge division in the country. But like the flip side of that is he got where he is by being provocative. Like he's not really anywhere, but he got kind of by being provocative on social media himself, you know? Yeah. It's, it's like, I mean, I, 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 me too. And I complain about social media, but I complain about disinformation, not about people just fucking clapping back or whatever. It's not binary. There has been a lot of progress and we have a lot of work still to do, which is the whole point of your work. Uh, at last, so last night I, I logged on to forwardparty.com and I joined. <laughs> what did I join? Oh, thank you, Michael. <laughs> that's the best news I've heard all day. How much did you give? That's the, that's the next question Andrew's going to ask. Will you be on the 2024 ballot as a party? And can I? No, well, they're not going to do anything like that, please. That's, that takes work. They're going to, they're going to throw bombs <laughs> from the, from, they're going to, they're going to keep building their ivory tower in what they believe to be the ideological center and throw bombs at everybody from it.
for uh, your party? What, what you joined is a democracy reform movement that's trying to transition us to a multi-party democracy. Uh, this two-party system is 160 years old and is decrepit. And you have to change the way we vote in order to change the system. Trying to transition us to a more modern, resilient, sustainable democracy. I will say my goal is not three parties. My goal is uh, four, five, six, seven parties. That would be a sensible system. That's never going to happen in a first-past-the-post voting system. Be going from also, also, well, they have it in other like parliamentary countries with a parliamentary system, but it's just like a historical thing where they've always had more than two parties, you know. And those are all first past the post. Okay, but that's a matter. It's history. It's you know history looms large in that too. It's just historically in the UK they've had a few parties. I think yeah. If if it were to happen in America, at least on a federal level, it would have to come with a change to how we vote, like either rank choice or like approval voting or something like that. Yeah, from two to three, because uh, you know the duopoly does not like competition. Um, so what you joined is uh, a movement to try and get us from two to three, so that we can have a more rational, rational, sensible functional system. Yeah. My wife's from Germany. They have, I don't know, half a dozen parties there and whoever wins, they have to make a coalition with the other parties because no one has a majority. That would be your goal. Something like that. Yeah. I think Germany does have seven parties. And if you think about it, uh, what, what, what's the reality in American life today? If you have one party succumb to terrible leadership, let's call him Donald Trump. Then in a two party system, you can have that leader assume control of the entire government and make bad decisions. But if you have, let's say the German system, if you have one terrible leader in one of the seven parties, he doesn't run everything. I mean, th th this is one reason why it's so important. What we're doing is that there are tens of millions of, I mean, uh, isn't that what Americans the right now, the three branches of government are for ostensibly, but how's that working out? Yeah. Now, if you give them a choice between Donald Trump and Democrat TBD, they're going to choose Donald Trump. But if they had a choice between, let's say, I don't know, a Mitt Romney-esque Republican or someone who is more moderate and Donald Trump, they would choose Romney. I mean, that's true of about 25 to 30 percent of Republicans. So uh, we have to give people a chance to truly express their preferences. And if we do that, we'll wind up with more moderate functional government as opposed to being whipsawed uh, based upon what functionally really 10 to 15 percent of Americans want. Right. So um, to get to even three or four parties, you have to get around this idea that if I vote for anybody but one of the two, my vote is thrown away. So Ross Perot famously drew enough votes away from um, George H.W. Bush to throw it to Clinton. Right. And then Ralph Nader may have drawn enough away. When was that? Well, he ran twice. Anyway, I just remember that scene where he appeared on Bill Maher's real time show and, and Maher and and uh, Michael Moore got down on their knees and begged him not to run, even though they were pretty closely politically aligned with Ralph Nader, especially Michael Moore. And yet you just can't do it. You can't because follow. he didn't have a chance of winning and he was going to take the yeah. votes away from the person of who's fairly close to what Michael Moore believes or closer than the Republicans. It's, it's called it, we call it a spoiler they don't run, i don't think everybody who runs as a third party does it to spoil the old, like you know what i'm saying i think some yeah. of them run for you know i don't know whatever reason they you know they a lot of them they surely don't think they're going to win but they may run for you know good reasons but sometimes they do operate as a spoiler yeah
Yeah, and um, you know, Shermer is saying pretty much what I said is, well, he hasn't brought up the voting system, but that is the problem with the first past the post voting system is, you know, you're essentially forced to vote for one of the two parties or your vote is the same as if you abstained. Right. Even just a first and second choice where if your first choice isn't viable, it goes to your second choice. You don't even need to do the whole rank choice. Just even first and second choice would be a deliverance, you know? Yep. Especially yeah, in the primaries. I think instant runoff would be better. Especially in the primaries. That'd be great in the primaries. Yeah, like instant runoff has its own issues, but it's way better than first past the post. Follow your principles. Well, that's this false dysfunction of the duopoly, where if you just transitioned from our current plurality voting system to ranked choice voting, Nader can run, Perot can run, if you like Nader, you could rank him first and then the Democrats second and no harm done. Um, now, the Democrats and the Republicans refuse to make this transition because they know if they had genuine competition, we, we wouldn't vote for them as much. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the, the two parties have this in common where they like to. I don't think that's it. I think to do it like on for federal elections, I think it might be that you would need a constitutional amendment. I'm not sure, though. Um, I think the states run their own elections, but like. The way we do our elections is so dumb anyway. We have, like, it's, when you vote, you're not actually voting for, like, like, your your vote isn't counted towards the ultimate vote. You're just voting for a group of electors to vote for you. Oh, just getting, even, like, yeah, we're talking, like, we're talking, like, he's talking about ranked choice, but we gotta get, you gotta get rid of the fucking electoral college. Yeah, there's like so much before we could implement ranked choice. And then like, you know, if it's run by the states, every state would have to do it or we'd have to pass a federal law, probably a a constitutional amendment. Probably if you're going to force all the states to do it. I'm not an expert on this stuff, but it's that seems like something that would rise to the level of constitutional amendment. Um, and not for nothing, there are cities that do it. I think New York City does it. Um, and there are other small cities that do it. And, you know, it goes okay. Oh, San Francisco does it. Nice. Yeah, San Francisco. That's how Chesa Boudin got in. It was ranked choice voting. He got enough. He got uh, like a lot of firsts and enough seconds to get him past the post. And then he got recalled. And now he's going to run again and win again. And he's going to get recalled again. It's dumb as fuck. <laughs> in a number of 90%. ways, America as a whole should be a lot more like San Francisco. Of the congressional districts in this country are uncompetitive, both blue and red. So if you give either party control of redistricting, they're going to draw on competitive lines because none of their people want to have a real race. Uh, and if you were to shift to ranked choice voting, then you get rid of the spoiler effect. And so when there are, let's say, for example, Democrats who scream bloody murder um, saying like, oh, you're going to mess it up for the Dems or whatever, then you just say, look, just change to ranked choice voting. And then they, they actually don't respond in a rational way, which would be like, oh, that's great. That solves the problem. Let me look into that. Uh, instead, they just continue shouting because that that's the way they're trained. Uh, you know, I don't know of any problems. Democratic uh, voter who acts like that, right? Or and does he mean? Does he mean, he mean like politicians, elected officials, probably people, who, okay. probably probably their staffers, maybe to some extent? But I mean, this is this is like 
obvious. If the way the system works right now gives a person power, they're not going to want to give up their power. Yeah. Like it's going to have to, it, like it, it would have to be something that someone ran on, not something that you convince someone of after they're in office. Uh, nothing in the constitution about it. Uh, Abraham Lincoln won in 1860 uh, with 39.8% of the vote as essentially a third party candidate. And that was the birth of the modern Republican party. Uh, so the Republican party replaced the Whigs and the know nothings. And then you wound up with Republicans and Democrats who were ideologically not that dissimilar until 1964, uh, when the civil rights act of 64 was passed, the South flipped from uh, Democrat to Republican. And then the two parties started to diverge ideologically uh, then you got cable news in 1996 when MSNBC and Fox were originated. Uh, the death of the uh, fairness doctrine was in like the middle late eighties. Uh, and then you had Facebook and social media coming in 2004. Um, so then you wind up with this hyper polarized, but we already had cable news 24 hours a day. Fucking CNN existed before Fox and MSNBC. Just added, added well, two it, more it, ideological, like sort of, one was l generally left and one was generally right, but there was already cable news. Yeah, but I, I do see his point of like, there wasn't kind of the news source that everyone went to. Uh, and instead there became like multiple different news sources that you can pick and choose from. Right. Uh, and he's got a good point here. I agree with that part. That is just terrible, terrible design. The founders... Uh, initially said we should not have a partisan system. Uh, John Adams called it a great evil across the land if you were to have two parties. Uh, George Washington famously warned against them in his farewell address. James Madison famously said you can't have factions that don't shift. Um, so right now we're living through the greatest design flaw in the history of the world, Michael, and it threatens to doom us all. And what you've done by joining the forward party is you've raised your hand and said, hey, mm. this system doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you know, like you could look around the world and see systems that do make sense. So let's try and transition to one of those types of systems uh, as soon as we can. And because of the stranglehold that duopoly has over everything, it's going to require millions of us getting up and saying, look, I'm going to create this middle lane. Um, and the, the way to do that is just by uh, changing the primary system so that you can vote for whomever you want. And I'm happy to say this has already happened in states around the country and it's on the ballot in November. So this is a movement that's actually starting to work because more and more Americans like you are waking up uh, and saying, you know, the status quo is, is not the answer. Yeah. Yeah, good. Uh, I will push that and, and try to get my followers to push that and get enough of us to do it. Two other issues that are uh, hot button topics, gerrymandering and voter ID. Oh, they did bring up gerrymandering. Kind of walk us through what, uh, I'm surprised. Know, what, what the manipulation behind the scenes uh, of those systems are and what we can do to push back against that. Yeah, so again, both sides gerrymander. Both sides uh, really dislike having to, to run competitive races. Um, and I mean, this uh, is kind of incorrect because California has an um, independent uh, committee or something that draws the lines. Like, based on... Uh, like, when um, he says When he says both sides gerrymander, I feel like what he's saying is... You know, it hurts to get a paper cut, and it also hurts to get stabbed in the face with a well, a steak knife. So, like, yes, both of those things do hurt. One hurts a whole lot more. Well, the 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 thing that the thing that's going on here now is because because California the gerrymand. I mean, <clears throat> you're going to end up with like 
districts that look weird or whatever like i think no matter what just because of the way roads are laid out or the way like landmarks are or however you want to kind of even just the way we think of a neighborhood right so you might end up with kind of weird districts but what's happening is we have a couple blue states i forget which other one i think it might be uh, massachusetts but i'm not sure that are that have these independent commissions and so then the that sort of takes away the any advantage in the house of representatives that california might be able to wield for the democrats if they were to do a partisan gerrymander like um for example you know florida a state where it's you know basically 50 50 it's like so close every election but their state because of the way their lines are drawn the gop has a significant advantage in the state house and then they have a significant advantage in the number of uh, people going to the house of representatives from florida and so what happens is it becomes uneven because one side essentially unilaterally disarms on the gerrymandering issue because one in 10 Americans lives in California. So, yeah, I think we should gerrymander. Well, we should gerrymander the shit out of California. I mean, I, if yeah, it's just uni- unilateral disarmament. If we wanted to do I mean, it like what? If it's not against the rules, why not take advantage of it until people clearly realize like, oh, that's really unfair. Let's change the rules. Like I'm there already, but there are a lot of people who aren't there yet. So let's help them get over there by taking advantage of the system. Saw, which is accurate, is that voters should choose politicians, not the other way around. Uh, but when you gerrymander, you're choosing voters. So uh, each party. And recently in New York State, Michael, the Democrats overreached so badly that Democrat-appointed judges said, this is unconstitutional, this map. And then they uh, drew a new map that had several incumbents have to run against each other, and they screamed bloody murder. But the map that they drew was just so beyond the pale <laughs> that, that, that even their own judges were like, that is not. So, so the, the problem right now is that gerrymandering is, uh, or the redistricting is typically in the hands of uh, the state legislators. Now, the ideal approach is if you had a bipartisan or nonpartisan commission that was drawing these lines. Um, that is not the case in the vast majority of states. So uh, it, it's a challenge for us to go from here to there. I'm going to suggest that having something like the forward party could be instrumental because if you were to, for example, have a secretary of state who's forward party, then they could be like, look, I'm going to certify this thing and I don't have a horse in in, in the race myself. Uh, It's right now like having a referee with a team jersey on. (laughs) You literally have Democratic secretaries of state, Republican secretaries of state. And like in, in this day and age, do we really trust that person to you know, a rule against their own team. Um, so it's one reason why what we're doing is so important. Uh, but gerrymandering is a problem on, on both sides. Right. So um, one of the things I've, I've always liked about you is your attitude. It seems pretty positive. You always seem like you're in a pretty good mood. And I can't imagine how you could possibly be because everybody, when you run for office, everybody hates you on the other side and half your own party hates you. And, you know, you just get a heap of hate thrown at you all the time. So the early chapter, Michael, he's rich. Talk about your childhood growing up and you know some of the discrimination you experienced. The money certainly doesn't about, hurt. Uh, taking up basketball <laughs> and you weren't too good at the start, and they called you what they called it a you know, the Chinese layup or something like. Oh, that. you know, jocks are just yeah, yeah. When I miss a layup, they said that must have been a Chinese <laughs> yeah. layup. I mean, I mean, kids are. I mean, wait, wait that's uh, racist. Uh, athletes, they're just. I'm glad you can glad hand about that. Talking. It is nasty. So maybe 
all the setbacks you had, and, and you also talk about, you know, you, you graduated for, with a law degree, but you didn't like going into the law, then you took up multiple entrepreneurship projects and they failed. Maybe it's good to have those kind of setbacks to develop a thicker skin. Uh, are you a parent, Michael? I am. I have two kids, yeah. I have a 30-year-old daughter who lives in New York, and I have a six-year-old son. <laughs> That's quite a range. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, that is quite a range. Uh, I've I've got a nine and a six year old, both boys, and I see the way they're growing up, and it's so different from the way I grew up. You know, mm -hmm. I grew up in the seventies and eighties in a town in upstate New York, uh, where I was one of the only Asian kids. So I got reminded of that fact a lot. And there there were some tough times growing up, trying to figure out uh, being comfortable uh, in my um, in my town or making friends or uh, trying to establish some kind of identity. And my, my parents, too, um, you know, were immigrants to this country, so they didn't really have much uh, of a way to guide my brother and me. Um, but to your point, uh, you know, like y you can continue to progress and grow through some adversity. Certainly, I feel like my business setbacks really helped form me uh, foundationally, where having companies fail in your 20s I thought that I would never, ever, ever relinquish that feeling, like how, how gutted you are when you put your heart and soul into something and it doesn't work out. And it really did a number on my confidence for months. Uh, and coming back from that for years afterwards, I was like, well, it can't be as bad as that time my company failed. Like, you know, it just makes you more resilient. Um, and then I had some success uh, in the business world. Uh, I started a nonprofit. Uh, called Venture for America that trained young entrepreneurs because I wanted more people to have the same kind of entrepreneurial journey that I had um, and have some mentorship and support and community. Uh, and it was only after running that nonprofit for six years, which involved working in the Midwest and the South extensively, that I decided to run for president, which was a very rash decision. Um, but, you know, I, I was convinced that there was a case that needed to be made and I thought, well, if I make this case and no one cares, like I can live with myself. So, so to your point, I think having failed multiple times in my life um, made me capable of taking on challenges that might daunt others. I mean, even now I'm trying to start a major third party, which by the way, like everyone sees as, you know, either very difficult or next to impossible. Though uh, I, I know we're gonna- Or I see it as a grift like Brett Weinstein's Unity 2020 that he tried to do. That's what I see going on here. Yeah, uh, like, I don't think it's impossible to start a third party in the United States, but I think a whole lot would have to be done before the party even started that hasn't been done. So I think, yeah, like you said, it's a grift. So I don't think he's in it for the money, though. I think he's it's a grift like it's an ego grift. You know what I'm saying? Like Jordy Pete, the same thing, right? They're not they're, And I'm not comparing him to Jordan Peterson. His politics are dramatically different from Jordan Peterson. But like at some point you have money, right? But you're, you want to do it. You grift anyway, because now it's about notoriety. It's about your ego. So I think kind of that's what's going on here. And as far as a third party goes, I think it if we're going to have one, it's going to start at local elections like something like the working families party out of New York, or I guess that's the example I have is it's starting, it starts small. It starts in a locality and then it would spread 
as like you get people elected locally and then maybe you get people elected at the county level you get a couple people at the state level and then at that point you're like you know what we've managed to get a couple of people elected at the state level let's move on to the next state like for new york they let's move to new jersey because jersey's right there and we have some connections there you know what i'm saying that seems like the way that it would that it would happen it would have to sort of happen it would and it would you know we'd be dead by the time it was a national party i think but yeah (laughs) it would take decades but i think that's the way that it has to happen because our other like forays into it the two major ones have been like the green party and the libertarians and neither of them have been able to really gather any steam because primarily especially with the greens when you hear about them all the time like during a presidential election and then between the presidential elections it's just fucking crickets except for like a few people (laughs) locally running maybe as the green party candidate, but there's no like organizing happening between elections and nothing going on really at the local level and no real state apparatus for these, uh, these two parties. And so, you know, we're seeing if what we're seeing from this kind these kind of top down, I, these kind of top down parties, it's just not going to work. You, it has to go the other way until it, until it's big enough to be a top down organization, like a regular political party. And that takes a lot of work and a lot of hustle and a lot of luck. I mean, you probably could do it with, like, Jeff Bezos money. But, like, you're not going to do that. Like, you're you're not... Like you said, a top-down party like that isn't going to work without, like, just an ungodly amount of wealth. Right, and then you have the problem with the that party being completely captured by the by its very wealthy donors. And you're yep. just you're just making a third version of the same problems we have with the two parties now. <laughs> now we got yep. now we got three corrupt parties. Great, <laughs> because I've been through several of these journeys, and you can tell when the wind is at your back, and everyone wants you to succeed. Uh, the truth is that sixty-two percent of Americans want an option from the two-party system. Fifty uh percent plus are now independents. Fifty-eight percent don't want to vote for Joe Biden or Donald Trump, which who are by the way, the most likely candidates that the major parties are going to put forward in 2024. I'm not talking about this last race. I'm talking about the I next know. race. So, <laughs> so in, in this environment, uh, you know, we're going to grow like mad because so many Americans are going to look up and be like, wait, these, these cannot be our two choices. Like, you know, combined age 159, kind of living em- emblems. It's cute the, that he thinks that. Desiccation of our political system. <laughs> you know? There's like a functional difference between going on like the internet and signing up for this guy's newsletter or whatever it is and going out and voting for their candidates too. Yep. If they have candidates, which I'm, you know, I'm skeptical that, that we'll see candidates. I know we don't have any for 2022 from them and I'm skeptical that we'll see any candidates or any like a number of candidates, you know, there might be some here and there, but we're not going to see like a lot of candidates from the, this organization. We're going to look around and say like, Hey, give me anything else. Uh, and, and I will work for it. Yeah. Right. Where are the Adams and Jeffersons and Hamiltons and Lincolns and, you know, just the real, I mean, they're all dead, Michael. <laughs> And they were partisans of their time, too. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't have, like, formed... They hadn't really formed political parties yet, but they were all factioned off and shit, too, Michael. Come on. Read a fucking history book sometime. 
smart people. I guess maybe at this point, it's so such an unattractive career to go into. You're better off going into Wall Street or Silicon Valley or just starting up your own uh, Wait, company. being a politician is an unattractive career? Bullshit. Have you seen how much money our senators have? Right. A lot of it from insider trading. Yeah. Like... It's amazing how much money you can make when you write the laws. From <laughs> politics. Yeah, that, that's the problem, Michael. I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this resemble this because, uh, you know, I have a very high regard for your audience. I think a lot of them are very, very bright um, and circumspect and thoughtful. And I'm going to say they're probably too circumspect and thoughtful to actually run for office <laughs> right. because it's so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, uh, and, and I have many friends who resemble this and I say, I get it totally. Uh, you know, wh one of the things I say to them is like, look, like, let, let me take the slings and arrows and just support me. You don't have to stick your neck out. Um, though, though I did get a call from someone today who's so fed up. He's like, hey, I'm considering running. So hmm. th there are different people who are um, trying to do more. But, uh, you know, I mean, again, if you have Donald Trump versus Joe Biden, there's no rational person who's like, these are like the one, the, the first and second best choices to, to, to run the country. You know mm -hmm. I mean? In a country of 330 million, like there are a lot of very, but like you're not, there's not going to, excuse me. There's not going to be a, a candidate from the forward party for president. And if there is that person's not going to win. Uh, but also like, how can he say that there's, no one that thinks that those are the best candidates like both at the same time. Yeah, probably there's no one that thinks Joe Biden and Donald Trump were the best candidates or are the best candidates. But like there are tons of people who thought Joe Biden was the best candidate and there are tons of people who thought Donald Trump was the best candidate, right? That's how you win a primary. Yeah. Like, well, I don't know. Competent, that that seemed like a very dumb thing to say. Right now, our system discourages those people from running for office. Yeah. Yeah. So in there's a certain amount of resentment of wealth in the country. Uh, I'm not sure where the line is, but it, it, there's a sense that that's just too, making too much money, uh, whatever that is. You know, if the CEO is paid 250 times the average worker's pay, that just feels wrong. Maybe if it was 20 times, that would feel right. John Mackey. Oh, if only it was 250 times. Right, it's up upwards of three hundred now, like, and and at massive cor in massive corporations, I don't even want to think about what that number is. <laughs> yeah, like what corporations where the vast majority of the workers are making minimum wage, and the CEO is making like millions of dollars a year. McDonald's cap at nineteen times the CEO's. Uh, pay over the average worker's pay. But I don't know where the number is. Uh, your story is interesting to me because, uh, um, you know, somebody could look at you and go, well, look, you're you're a multimillionaire. You made all this money. You know what I thought uh, was a good solution? Uh, I pinned this tweet on my Twitter. It's the pay gap tax. I think a company, the company itself, should be taxed based on, like, not all tax, but, like, uh, like he was saying 19 times or whatever, let's, let's just say 20 times once, once the CEO is making 20 times what the average or no, what the lowest paid worker is making, uh, 
then you start to tax the company based on how big that gap is. Right. Like, so the bigger the gap, the more tax the company has to pay. So, right. Like a, a, you're basically assessing a, a penalty on top of the uh, marginal rate for that. Yes. No, not, not a bad idea. Yeah, and it doesn't come out of the CEO's paycheck. It comes out of the company. One one of the reasons we want to reward people with a big payoff is that the failure rate is so high that they need to to have that reward to take the risks. So, how do you think about that in your context of your models? Well, you know, I I think it's a tough time in American life, Michael, where you you do have uh, an economy that is what I call like very winner take all. It's kind of extreme. you know, like uh, it, it, some other people have called it the superstar economy, where if like you're really talented, you end up accruing a lot. Um, but that's a crazy thing to say. 35% of Americans graduate <laughs> from college with a four-year degree. So you're, you're a country of two-thirds high school. I know a ton of super talented people that are dirt and, poor. And so your, your question is, okay, do you need to be an outlier to succeed in American life at a high level? And yes. Do you do, uh, is that yep. sustainable? And one of the arguments I'd make is like, well, shoot, no, it's not sustainable. I have to make it so that like that, that's the reality. Generally, that's how that, that's what precedes people getting beheaded. Yeah. Generally there's, um, or the, the after their place is stormed. Yeah. But not by like, not by like the, the bourgeois, like what, what happened uh, on January 6th, right? Those were a lot of like small business owners and real estate agents and yeah. shit, <laughs> but, um, not for nothing. Like I don't always agree. In fact, I generally tend to disagree with Scott Galloway. He does a podcast with Kara Swisher called pivot, but he said something kind of interesting that the, in what the university system does now sort of, is it takes extraordinary people and makes them more extraordinary, like at the top level of the university system, right? And what it needs to be mm-hmm. doing, and it seemed to function that way in California up until basically Reagan, um, because the university was all but free, um, is that it needs to just take ordinary people and lift them up and make them, you know, like, you know, allow ordinary people to do extraordinary things through education. And that's like, like I said, I don't definitely don't agree with uh, venture capitalist Scott Galloway on too terribly much, but uh, that's one of the things he says a lot on that show that I think is pretty, pretty important. And I don't know how to get there. I don't think anybody knows how to get there, but maybe going back to free uh, public university would certainly help. And for sure, and expanding yeah. admissions for some of these be- bigger, better, like Harvard has this huge endowment, yet they're doing nothing to expand their ability to admit new students. So what the fuck is their endowment for? You know what I'm saying? Well, you know, they operate as a hedge fund or some shit, I guess. I don't know what they're doing with that money. Hopefully they didn't put it all in Bitcoin. This book was called the war. On <laughs> or actually, hopefully they did. Fuck them. I think we're squeezing, uh, everyday Americans more and more and our political systems. Part of it. Uh, you know, if you had a functional political system, you'd be doing more to try and, make things more affordable or less unaffordable or less ridiculous uh, for, for Americans. But at this point, the system is run by uh, corporate interests who have very high levels of uh, resources to get their way. Um, so, so that, so that leads to an environment where if someone has been successful, then everyone's like, fuck you, you're like a terrible person. And you know, you're mm-hmm. no how su- like <clears throat> there's a difference uh, between successful and fucking obscenely rich though. Yeah, like to me, successful is you have enough money that you can live a comfortable life, right? Without like too much family, without, without too much money stress. Yeah, and then 
And then there's like, you have a million times that much money. Right. And at that point, like, what kind of person are you? Yeah. Like, why, why do you think that you deserve to have a million times the amount of money you would need to live comfortably? Because you're really good at making other people work really hard. That's generally it. Yeah. And taking a lot of the money that they make. That's generally it. Because if it was, if it, if that was flipped, then the people that we've, uh, we all hear of working three jobs would be the ones with all the money. Right. Yep. Prevalent rigged system. Um, I have friends who are very successful. I have friends who are, you know, not as successful. And one of the things that the forward party is about is like, look, we don't want to like demonize or villainize anyone. Like if someone's successful within the system, I'm going to say to you, it's probably not their fault. The system is set up that mm-hmm. way. They were just like running their race. <laughs> you know, as, as long as But the thing is like a like lot of these to... same people who are like exorbitantly successful in our society pay the people who write the laws in order to become more exorbitantly successful. Or Quote, use successful. By that I mean just like obscenely wealthy. Or they use their money and power in <clears throat> A variety of other ways to kind of make sure the system doesn't change. It's not just buying politicians, you know, they, they, so yes, it is their fault. Right. After a certain point, right. You know, uh, in this case, it's hate the player and hate the game. Yeah. <laughs> Something positive, like it, it, it's fine. Um, it, it's one of the things that, you know, I said on the presidential debate stage, they were like, you know, throwing rocks at Tom Steyer, for being mm. a billionaire and i'm like tom steyer spending tens of millions of dollars trying to address climate change like you know it's like you're really gonna like knock but if he's a billionaire tens of millions of dollars is like me giving you six bucks <laughs> uh, yeah you know, and, that's and true making it so that someone like him could have those resources um so we, we have to get everyone together we have to get people who are on the outside looking in to say look i get it that this this system's not very well designed for you and yours and people who are doing very well in the system and be like, look, this is not sustainable. Like we, we have to try and make it so it makes sense for more people. Yeah. When you wrote the war on normal people, you talked a lot about um, automation, especially like self-driving cars. And it seemed like at the time um, it was right around the corner. And here we are five years later and we're still five years away, probably from self-driving cars. I have but 10 years is right around the corner, Michael. If it takes 10 years from the time you write something and you say something's right around the corner, like historically, that's right around the corner. Certainly in, in terms of like AI. <laughs> right, right. And it's going to be, it's going to, it's going to be exponential. Like it's, it is soon, like we already have, we already have machine, we already have machine learning, writing machine learning code. Like, come on, dude, it's going to, it's going to fucking, <laughs> it's, it's going to crack off. And then people are going to be fucked. But Tesla, I love my Tesla. I love Elon Musk, but I don't Wait, see why. It. I just, I think we're still five years away, and I think maybe. I'll- why do you love Elon Musk? He's a massive piece of shit, dude. Yeah, that's a really weird. Like, what has Elon Musk ever done for you? I suspect it's a much harder problem uh, than it seemed like it at first. Um, I like the self-driving mode, or, you know, the kind of steering. Wait, did it seem like an easy problem? Left, left. So weird, right? You want a car to drive itself. No one thought that would be easy. Well, I guess Bar- Michael Shermer thought it would be easy. 
it would get a lot easier if all the other cars were driving themselves and they were all communicating. So instead of having to guess what the other car is going to do, they all knew. Or Mercedes was working it, on that back in the 80s and nobody, everybody thought that was a crazy town way to do it. And I'm like, well, and you look back on it and you're like, if they were able to like start on that shit in the 80s, like we should have gone that direction versus like these cars all trying to be able to see and like it's harder. It's just a much, much more difficult problem than networking all the cars would be. There's always going to be though like pedestrians in the road and animals in the road and like if your car doesn't stop for a deer in front of you like that's not a good car. You're all what car? And what, we can't what? Wi-Fi enable the deer. Right, right. Right, but I mean it wasn't like it wasn't like that there weren't going to be these kinds of sensors and I think they were only working on it for like freeway travel at the time. Okay. Where there's like controlled access to the freeway versus like on a road obviously you can cross the street but you know don't, you don't see many crosswalks on the freeway yeah <laughs> but it was pie in but the you sky still back. got things like uh you still got things like construction workers right might be in the road uh fallen debris might be in the road and your car needs to be able to process all those things and do the right thing like a human does well, so all, it's not an easy problem at all. Right. And I mean, all these sensors, I think once, once we have self-driving cars, they will be networked in a way they have to be right. Because yeah. if a car, if yeah. a car in front of you sees a hazard, why shouldn't it tell your car that there's a hazard there? Yeah. Well, I think they were networked in such a way that that car will tell a server somewhere, Hey, there's a hazard right here. And the server will tell all the other cars nearby. Right. There's a hazard there. Right. That's that that's that's the fucking sauce right there, right? We essentially already have that with like like user reported data. Uh but the cars reporting that data is what you're talking about. And yeah, I I do think that's coming. That's the sauce right there. Yep. Lane of the four oh five just grinding along, okay. But you know, like any other surface you know, regular surface roads, mountain roads and stuff, there's no way I would let it uh it be automated like that do you, do you do you think it's still coming or are you a little more skeptical now well you know i tried to use that as an illustration in large that's interesting that he said regular surface roads he wouldn't let become automated right because eventually there will be and by eventually i mean we're probably not too far away from it uh like maybe five years probably 10 years is like I would say we'll surely be there by 10 years, but to the point where an automated system like the, the top of the line automated system is better at driving on surface streets than humans. Hopefully. And again, I think, and in that case, the network networking is going to be really important too. just, there's a lot of pedestrian traffic in this space right now. Avoid this area or just stuff like that, you know? It would be yeah. it, the, that that networking component. Nobody really talks about it. I think it's crucial. I think, like I said, if you could imagine it, Mercedes Benz was ahead of the game in the eighties. Uh, we're already at the point that uh, for freeway driving, at least a self-driving car is better than a human. Like self-driving cars are safer than human driven cars. Too, and being a trucker is the most common job in 29 states, so it, it's highly, highly relevant for hundreds of thousands of Americans. Um, but the automation phenomenon writ large, 
can apply in ways that are both obvious and inobvious uh, to the most common occupations. So the, the most common occupations in America are uh, customer service, including call centers, uh, retail, food service and food prep. Um, manufacturing, believe it or not, is still number five. Um, and truck driving and transportation is number four. So if, if you look at those industries, you can see that we're going to automate a lot of the retail jobs, we're going to automate a lot of the call center jobs. Believe it or not, there's still over 2 million Americans in call centers um, making you know, about 16 bucks an hour. Um, and so if you ask yourself, well, uh, will AI be able to do the jobs of those call center workers pretty soon? It's like, sure. Uh, you, know, you don't think of like a robot so. walking to a mall, but like the robots in the Amazon Fulfillment Center, so that's why the mall closes. Food service and food prep in some ways is more stubborn, um, but certainly some of the chains are, are investing um, in back-of-the-house stuff to some extent, front-of-the-house with self-service kiosks. And COVID has accelerated all that. Like a while ago, they might have been like, yeah, we'll just like, you know, continue to have a person and pay them a little bit. But now they're like, screw it. Let's try and like lighten up the staffing in all of our places. Um, hey, Dave, so you ever call one of those each other. companies and get a robot on the phone? <sighs> Uh, not that I'm aware of. I mean, I've gone through like the shitty call, like, like my experience has been that you get like a robot that is useless and then yeah, it eventually like gives you a call tree. Yeah. And then it gives you to a person who, uh, yep. some, and uh, I got to tell you my experience when I've been calling for things lately has been that the people I've spoken to have been highly competent. Um, I don't know if it's function, maybe the pandemic and they're able to do it from home and they're more comfortable, less worn out because they don't have to commute to their job or whatever. I don't know what it is, but I've, even when I've had problems, like when I've been kind of, um, you know, not happy because I had to call, I've gotten highly competent people, but the call, the phone trees are shit. I'd rather just have yeah. press one for this press two, for, like the old school phone tree is more useful than these things yeah. where you're, it's like, tell me what your problem is. And you tell it the problem. It's like, I don't understand. And it's like, that's because you're not an under, you're not an entity that understands things. <laughs> that's because someone programmed you to understand five problems. And my problem is not one of those five. Or my phrasing of the problem doesn't, doesn't fit into like the way that you want, that you understand language. <laughs> it could be one of the five problems. I'm just describing it in a different way because I don't know. I'm describing it in a different way. But yeah, based on where current technology is at, I don't think AI is going to be up to the level of like replacing call center workers anytime soon. I think we'll solve driving before that. Uh, manufacturing for sure. Um, so even if you were to, to allow like, hey, uh, truckers aren't going to get replaced anytime in the next number of years, uh, like you're still looking at the same phenomenon economy-wide. Again, two-thirds of Americans don't graduate from college. Uh, and so that's why I just listed the five most common uh, industries uh, that people work in, because where do high school graduates work? They work in the mall. They work in um, you know, the, the food service uh, industry. Maybe we need to do something about that, and maybe find a way that people who don't want to get a four-year degree or don't go to a trade school or whatever can get different kinds of jobs. I don't know. The, the five industries I just named employ about half of all American workers to give you a sense of it. And, and, and these are what you think of as blue collar. I mean, if you look at uh, white collar work, I mean, some of these AI engines can do basic uh, prose writing. Um, they, they can now spit out uh, graphics and, and arts and designs. 
uh, a lot of the insurance uh, customary calculation, um, accounting, bookkeeping, some basic legal work. Uh, you know, I mean, heck, you used to have trader desks. Now it's been replaced by technicians and, and computer servers. So, so the trends are very real. Right. You, um, you've encountered these counter arguments like, well, they used to worry about the elevator operator standing there pushing the buttons for, for the uh, people using the elevator. Well, that out got automated and those people just found other jobs. So people will just find other things to do. And your rebuttal to that is what? Well, well right now, the, the major red flag, Michael, is the labor force participation rate which last I checked is something like 62%. Um, and if you try and map what that means, I mean, you're looking at something like one out of three working age American men is not in the workforce. Uh, and uh, a lot of those men wind up... Wait, no, 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 no. The workforce participation rate has been heavily influenced by the baby boomers retiring. When you're retired, you're counted as not participating in the workforce. And you're of working age. Circumstances around, but that's the workforce part. I don't think the workforce participation rate um, excludes retired people. I'm not sure though. Maybe I'm yeah. wrong. No, I think you're right. Around um, substance abuse, uh, self destruction. I think it's driving our politics too. Because if you have someone who's at home uh, all day and then they get on their computer and they go down an, an internet rabbit hole of conspiracy theory and then they get radicalized and then before you know it wait a minute aren't you friends with brett weinstein meeting with a few <laughs> other people in real life uh you know like planning something <laughs> terrible so uh so these trends are all tied together um i i think that is the the single biggest red flag for us all right now is like look like what proportion of americans who are working age are actually in the workforce um, and if you look at that 62 or so percent, it's one anomalously low for developed countries. Uh, last I checked, it, it's comparable to El Salvador or something like that. I mean, it's not where you want to be. Uh, and number two, it's been trending negatively for quite some time. Um, uh, and it hasn't recovered to pre-COVID levels is one example. Right. When you first introduced the idea of UBI, I thought, well, the government can't just send everybody a check, can they? Well, apparently they can. <laughs> we just went through two rounds of this, one under Trump and one under Biden, and everybody got a check. Uh, so obviously the government can do that. It's pretty good at that, actually. Um, but then now we have inflation and the economy. Why would he is, think you know, that kind of the government couldn't related? do that? I mean, I, I don't know enough about economics to know, but, you know, you hear some economists anyway talk about, well, if you just print money, you're going to get inflation. Oh, we, the CARES Act was about $1.6 trillion. Uh, it turns out that the cash relief checks that were received by rank and file families, something like 16% of that total. Uh, if you do the math, like the relief checks they sent us was not $1.6 trillion. Like $1.6 trillion would be... Uh, maybe 5,000 ahead <laughs> or something like that. They didn't send us 5,000 ahead. Um, so, so where did the other 84% yeah. of the money go? It went into, uh, it went into banks, it went into airlines, it went into cruise ship operators, it went into the pipes, it went into companies. Um, we really just tried to run around and make the corporate sector whole and protect them. Um, and so that's where most of the money went. Uh, so you wind up with uh, a system with tons of liquidity and you end up in, in, with inflation in part because some of your supply chain, um, you know, uh, operations uh, aren't, uh, uh, aren't sustaining. 
Um, so even if you were to buy, it's like, look, you know, we, we pumped liquidity into this economy, which I objectively agree that we have, like we've done it in a way that does not, it doesn't prioritize people, families, like the cash relief was a very small proportion of it. Um, and now, unfortunately, a lot of that purchasing power is just getting eaten up by inflation on the daily <laughs> by folks. So, so the, this to me is a product of the fact that we've had an easy money policy for gosh, like now um, about 14 years uh, and, and we've been um, taking care of corporates pretty much the entire time. Uh, you know, I mean, you and I are old enough to remember when the interest rates were like, you know, three, four, five percent. Mm-hmm. And like there's actually like a, a mm-hmm. cost of things. Um, and, and that hasn't been the case since 08, at least. Right. Well, yeah. Interest rates. Well, in the 70s, you know, to buy a house that, you know, when I graduated from college and then started looking at, let's see, I was looking for homes in maybe the 80s and interest rates were pretty high. So, but there are things the government can do along those lines, like adjust interest rates through the prime and the Fed can make adjustments. And I was thinking about this with reparations as well, you know, short of just sending every African-American a check or every Native American a check, you know, could they not like do something like the equivalent of the GI Bill, you know, where everybody that uh, served the country during World War II gets a free college education. Boom, we'll take care of that. You're not sending anybody checks. You're just giving them an opportunity to improve their uh, economic standing and power and, and, and so forth. There's lots of things like uh, uh, the house I live in, I get to deduct the interest I pay on the mortgage. Uh, I'm married, so I get a marriage deduction. I have a kid. so I get Isn't he just making an argument for kid. affirmative so action right here? The government could do a yeah, lot. he is. And <clears throat> I mean, that's fine. I don't. I don't see a problem with, you know, if if we there's no political will to really do reparations anyway. Um, but if we were to do them in, in ways that were non just not a check, they would have to be pretty robust. Right. And they would have to be more than college. Right. OK, well, what about people who are 50 and just don't want to go to college or don't think that they can. Right. They just I'm like they're like, yeah. I can't do that. I, you know, I have to work still. Well, maybe that person. Maybe that person, the government, if they're living in an apartment and they can make a mortgage, the government pays the down payment on a house and backstops their fucking mortgage. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, it would, we could do individualized solutions for people in different kinds of stuff, different, you know, different age brackets or different, you know, just, or people who, what about people who already have a college education? Do they get a second one? Well, no, they probably have a career they want. Maybe, maybe you just, maybe you just give those people money. I don't know. But it's not like this myth that just putting everybody, get, getting everybody an education is going to level the playing field has just been fucking pervasive my entire life. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, I I feel like it would be better than nothing. And right now, it I don't know what we're actually doing, but it certainly feels like nothing. Those lines. Oh, yeah. And we should be doing more. Uh, you know, this is a very, very tough time, Michael. It, it makes me super sad because you've had a loose monetary policy for a long time. Uh, inflation is now a raging problem. Um, and so what you're going to have to do is what they did in the 70s, which is raise interest rates, which is going to have a negative effect on stock, stock market prices and housing prices and uh, asset prices generally and just economic growth. Um, so I, I don't see a way out of it. You know, I talked to David Rubenstein, who was in the administration in the 70s, and they just had to, like under Volcker, they just jacked up the interest rate over and over again to get inflation under control. Uh, I, what if we did interest rates like per- we did progressive taxation? Like if you're just trying to borrow money for your first house, 
Maybe your interest rate's low on that. But if it's your third house, guess what, buddy? The interest rate's pretty high. <laughs> you know, if you're, if you're taking out money to buy, if you're taking out a loan against your stock or whatever, because you're a billionaire and that's what they all do, guess what? The interest rate on that's pretty fucking high. And you know what you're doing? You're subsidizing the fucking family who can, who can now afford a house because they're paying 0.5% interest on the house. I like that. That's a really good idea. Progressive interest rates. Yeah. Like, you, you know, these people with all this, you know, these billionaires, they're not liquid, right? Their money's all in stock and the way they, they just take out loans against the stock they own. Well, guess what, asshole? You're paying 12% on that. Fuck you. <laughs> or sell some of yeah, your stuff. Yeah, make it equal to capital gains tax. <laughs> right. Sell some because they're doing capital. Well, fuck capital gains tax too. We need to fucking abolish that because that shit's income too. What are you not getting the money? Fuck off. Like, <laughs> but again, maybe, maybe if you're, you shouldn't, maybe you should have a special capital gains rate. If you're, if you have less than, you know, fucking a hundred thousand dollars worth of stock or something, you know what I'm saying? Like maybe you can get a, like a, we can do progressive capital gains too, but I like the progressive interest rate thing where it's, you know, Elon Musk, he should have to sell his stock if he needs to get liquid. He shouldn't just be able to take out a loan against his fucking stock. And if he does take out a loan against his stock, there should be a pretty big fucking penalty for doing that because that's gaming the system and you're fucking somebody else needs that loan. Yep. Yeah, I think that's a really good idea. Like, what is the loan for? Like, if you're buying, if you're taking a loan to buy a Toyota Camry, your fucking interest rate should be you know, all other things, all other things being equal or whatever. Your interest rate should be a lot lower than if you're taking it out to buy a fucking Ferrari. But what if you're taking out a loan to buy your your very first social network? To buy you're an already first time social network buyer. If to buy an already existing one that's that's then yeah, the fucking you should pay a high interest rate. But if you're taking out no, just, a loan just a small fifty billion dollar loan. But if I mean if you're taking out a loan to start a company maybe to compete with Twitter, maybe that interest rate should be considerably lower. I'm just I'm just making fun of Elon. Yeah, yeah. He didn't even get a loan. Like he took out his own money to buy that, uh, and he's got to do it. Situation, and I think they pick higher interest rates. Um, so for anyone who's out there and invested, it's one of these like buckle up uh, times um, because the I, I I just don't see them having a choice. Uh, you know, you can't have inflation running at these like uh, you know eight percent levels um, indefinitely. Yeah. Nine percent. I mean, you know, I, I forgot the last. Yeah, no, was. I think it was nine percent in the stock market. I, I haven't even checked today. I can barely stand to look. <laughs> you poor guy. To see where I was, my my retirement account was two years ago when I was happy about my retirement. I mean, I'm account. getting hurt by the stock market too. So that's uh, worrying for sure. And for me, it, um, I'm yeah, sure it means a lot more than for Michael Shermer. Yeah. Well, so, so this is the tough part is that we still have these problems that I would love for to me. That equation is how long can I keep my company going before I have to national service, give up and go get another job, help you with your vocational training, we'll help you with your college debt or education. Like we'll, we'll do all these things because to, to me, the major problem is that you do have, uh, you know, 38% of Americans of working age, including tens of millions of men in particular. And I'm deeply concerned about men in particular because the trends are so negative among men, uh, higher levels of behavioral problems, substance abuse, uh, only, only 40% of college students are men now. Um, so if you think about what that means, um, socially, I mean, it, it's, it's very, very, 
negative. Uh, and, and you oh, is he going to do the chart? You know the chart I'm talking about, right? Where the high value men take all the women. That just doesn't seem. Jeez. They're they're actually like the cause of problems. Is he an MRA? object of maybe uh, you know like failing systems which is the way I, I would look at it um so we should be investing massive amounts in or a pua who's who are the ones that use the chart service, they're the pickup opinion. artists right um, but you're no they're the um the involuntarily celibate tend to use the chart ah okay because they're like the chad takes all the women okay well he's not an incel i mean he's got a wife yeah yeah entering a contractionary financial environment where everyone's going to look around and be like you but know, he might be been pandering to the incels for, for too long um it, it it does make me very sad because you know I, I think it's going to be a rough time well you and i both have graduate degrees i i, I also want to say that I, yeah good i also want to say that there was an enhanced child tax credit that was part of the relief mm. bills that was some yeah. of the best policy we'd had yeah. in generations it lifted millions of poor kids and poor families out of poverty like that that was exactly the kind of, exactly the kind of investment we should be making like work rates went up it was so positive all the data was really uh really um tremendous and 240 economists signed a letter saying we should keep this going like everyone was like this is the best thing we've done and of course washington being what it is they uh they, they didn't renew it and so it, it's been off since january yeah well there's which party was that that did that about a college degree and you and I have graduate degrees. That's even more elitist. And yet, what's wrong with a vocational school? What's wrong with having a trade? You know, a lot of these trades pay pretty well, right? 100000 bucks a year as plumbers or, or whatever. What's wrong with that? And, and the answer is nothing. HVAC repair, <laughs> very hot field. Which one? Yeah, nothing's wrong with it. You have job security. Yeah, HVAC repair is a very, oh. very hot field where they can't. I mean, a lot of these fields, they, they cannot find the people. Right. If if you have a good work ethic and you go through a vocational training program and, and enter some of these fields, you will get paid six figures reliably. Uh, and uh, there's a shortage uh, of people uh, doing it right now. Again, in my opinion, because of cultural um, uh, messages that say like, "Hey, you got to go to college to have a good life." Oh, by the way, you know, like the uh, underemployment rate for college graduates is like, you know, 40%. <laughs> so, so you know, like, like the, 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 it, it's, there, there really is a set of elite messaging that's failing the American people, Michael, and it, it, it makes me angry. Right. I mean, there's a good case to be made for, you know, getting a broad general education in the humanities so you know how to think and you, you have cultural references to Shakespeare or whatever, but that's not going to get you a job. I mean, it, you can you can get that education on your own now. It's pretty readily available online through many sources, <laughs> yeah, right? Could. At some point, you got to get a job. <laughs> totally. And um, yeah, again, I think you know the cultural norms have been well. You have to go to college. You know, since the world since World War II, that's been the shift. At Chapman University, where I teach, yeah, it's about sixty forty girls boys. Uh, you know, I look out at a sea of women in my class. It's like, where are the guys? Wow. Okay. And I saw this coming for a year. Wait, this guy, it's after all that's going on, this guy teaches young people, like at a college. <laughs> yeah, young, mostly girls. Um, okay. Seems like a good idea. Whatever. Yeah, so um, let's talk about social media and the news media. You have several chapters on this that are close to my heart because I've been, we track this as well, you know, misinformation being spread through media. Now social media is a, wait, aren't you friends with Brett Weinstein? 
problem. You know, what's the solution to that? Uh, the fairness doctrine, uh, you know, the section 230 and all that stuff. Uh, you know, do you really want, uh, I was just thinking, reading that chapter of yours, if they abandoned 230, overturned it or whatever, and and Facebook could be sued, if I say something about you on my Facebook page that libels you and harms you, let's say I accuse Andrew Yang's an embezzler or something, and all of a sudden your uh, fundraising dries up, you could sue me for libel, but could you also then sue Facebook for allowing me to... So I don't want to get too deep into the weeds on section 230 but every reasonable person i have heard talk about it doesn't want to just kill it they want some reform they want some reform to it like where if you are defaming my character you're saying i um i don't know i was convicted of such and such a crime when i wasn't and facebook refuses to remove it after the person is doing it over and over and over again then at some point they should be responsible for broadcasting that message. Right. Yeah. I agree with you. But, um, but if they it do it once, be... if, if the person does it once and there's no pattern of behavior on, on the part of Facebook, then no, I, the, the judge would throw it out. So it would be about patterns of behavior and about allowing, allowing these things, allowing things like defamation of character, harassment campaigns, these kinds of things. Um, like Zoe Quinn during Gamergate should have been able to go after Twitter because Twitter knew exactly the fuck was going on and allowed it. Yeah. I'm on your side on that. So like everybody, like I said, uh, the best takes on this are generally from Neelai Patel, actually of the verge. She's a, a technology reporter, but also an attorney and his takes on section two thirty are just, they're just so good so good all the time and it's you know it we could make it so if it's just my little website or whatever and somebody's defaming somebody in my comments well i mean my website gets you know i don't know a good article will get ten thousand views or whatever i'm not fucking i'm not the problem right there's not a lot of eyeballs on that shit so yeah don't you for defamation don't you have to demonstrate that you were uh that you were harmed by it right and so so just carving, like just reforming section 230 would be a huge deal. The pro the devil would be in the details. And unfortunately any reform to section 230 would be written by lobbyists for fucking Facebook. Right. So yeah, it wouldn't be, wouldn't be great. It wouldn't be great. A libelous statement. And if so, wouldn't that just open the door? Wouldn't they be sued a thousand times a day? Cause they have so much money. Yeah, I, I don't advocate for complete repeal of Section 230, which insulates the social media platforms from uh, legal liability. Though, honestly, total repeal would probably be better than status quo. <laughs> no, status quo is better. Is that we use it as leverage, where right now... I mean, total repeal uh, would essentially Facebook mean there is no more Facebook or Twitter. ...share any data with the public. And so... Would that be say, better? Look, <laughs> Maybe it would. Give you a liability shield if you share all of your data mm. <laughs> we can see what's happening yeah <laughs> you know share the algorithm uh, you know and then they have a choice to make and be like huh like wow like i really like just being able to destroy democracy and destroy our kids mental health without you knowing what i'm doing um and i sure do love this liability shield <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's worth you know it's worth maybe given that they're a trillion dollar company it might be worth hundreds of billions of dollars um, so that then you have like a genuine um, 
you know, negotiation, exchange of value. Um, and that's what the American people are owed for, you know, at this point, years and years. Um, someone likened it, and I think this is pretty fair, that back in the day, in the 19th century, there were chemical manufacturing plants that just dumped chemicals in the river. And then eventually we figured out, hey, that actually ends up downstream and it hurts us, so stop doing that, and here's an agency, and let's keep you from dumping. Social media companies are at the same point right now. It's just that our government is too backwards uh, and uh, anachronistic and disincentivized and geriatric to understand what needs to be done. Uh, and so we're being torn apart. We're being pitted against each other. Our democracy may not survive. Uh, but Zuckerberg, you know, owns Maui or whatever the heck he owns. And you know, <laughs> I, mean, like, I mean, I have nothing against people doing very, very well. Um, but it shouldn't be at our expense. You know, I mean, eventually the social media companies have to be like, look, turns out just following the market to its logical extreme, not that great for kids, society, democracy. Mm. You're talking about um, the social media effects on teenagers as the equivalent of being downstream from a chemical plant dumping chemicals into the river? Yeah, I will make that comparison, sure. Yeah. If, I, if I had won the White House, Michael, I was going to go to war with... I would agree with that comparison. <laughs> I think he's the... Yeah. Because just, I was like, look, because Facebook, Barbara Walter, this political scientist, found a negative correlation between uh, Facebook in particular and democratization around the world right like when you slide into autocracy uh it's because facebook is there right <laughs> and, and so you know is that happening here 100 percent. so you know like this this is our company it's like an american company still um even though i'm not sure at this point they even regard themselves as an american company they have something like two billion users um but you know like i i would go to war and say look like you know first we're going to see to it that you're not destroying us, destroying our kids' mental health, destroying our sense of reality, destroying uh, our democracy. Also, you can make a bit more money. Um, and then we can examine whether, you know, there are practices that need to be changed in other countries. Um, but yeah, it, it would start here. As an entrepreneur, why couldn't there be a market solution? That is to say, like parental regulation on how much you could uh, build, uh, let your kids watch uh, or consume social media, but more importantly, why aren't there half a dozen competitive Facebook companies? Why aren't there? Why doesn't Peter Thiel start the equivalent of Twitter? There were, and Wait. Facebook bought them. Also, not for nothing. How? Who the fuck do you think was an angel investor for Facebook? Hold on, social media. But more importantly, why aren't there half a dozen competitive Facebook companies? Why aren't there? Why doesn't Peter Thiel start the equivalent of Twitter and just? and just knock them out of the park with their own company? Is it just a, kind of a market head start that they get, like a path dependency, like the QWERTY keyboard? And No, it, it's more fundamental than that, Michael. It, it, it's more fundamental. It's the same reason why it, like you would not use the third best search engine, the third best... Wait a minute. So the guy was like, like, oh, you know, Twitter and Facebook are bad. Let me look for a bigger monster than Mark Zuckerberg. Here, Peter Thiel should do a, a, social, me a social network. It's like, fuck, man. <laughs> You picked like the only picked like a one of the few people on the planet who's like a bigger monster than fucking Mark Zuckerberg. Gation <laughs> tool, um, like these tech tools gravitate towards winner take all, and then they end up with better data, um, especially social media. Because like the reason why no one goes on Truth Social is because no one's there, and so like why the heck am I going to go there? <laughs> right. You know the, 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 right. the reason why I, I am going to go like on, on Twitter is because everyone's there. So if I start a new social media company, it's it, like the moat is so vast, it may be uncrossable. 
The truth is that each of us wants only a few social media networks, one for our professional stuff, so that's LinkedIn, one for our kid photos, uh, so that's Facebook, and then one for our intellectual meandering, so that's Twitter. And then you, you do wind up with like a couple of uh, music videos. One, to, so one like, to figure out which of your friends is a racist piece of shit. That's Facebook. That's Facebook. <laughs> is there some innovation? Kind of. Um, but Facebook then took Instagram off the market for a billion bucks. So even when you do have a successful upstart, they just get absorbed by the, the behemoths. Should the U.S. had it, had it shit together and stop that acquisition? Probably. Um, you know, WhatsApp, similar story. So if you look at the market dynamics, you'll wind up with a few mega winners. You know, look at like Amazon and retail. Can you imagine someone coming up and being like, I'm going to like compete in, in retail? I actually know the guy who did that. <laughs> Uh, twice, mm. like uh, Mark Laurie with diapers.com mm. and jet.com. And, uh, you know, jet.com ended up getting bought by Walmart because Walmart ha- has to take on the unenviable, impossible task of challenging Amazon. So they were like, all right, like, um, but, but there, this, the, 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 the markets will just end up with winner take all. Um, and so if you wait for a market solution, you wait forever. Mm. Right. So you're going to end up with something like that in cable news. You have Fox News on the one side and MSNBC slash CNN on the other. We have something like a duopoly. Isn't CNN like generally kind of like more down the middle? It's just that Fox has become um, so conservative that that CNN looks like a liberal network. I think CNN has become more liberal in the past few years. Is is it a result of is it a result of that their their like content changing or is it a result of the uh, the shift in the Overton though? Like I Fox? think it's a result of their content changing. Huh. I think CNN has CNN's content has become much more liberal. I don't watch cable news, so and they're just unwatchable now. I mean, I just you know it's something I study and and I know that half the things they say on there are just not true. They're just saying them to polarize people that generates more income and higher ratings for them and you know they have those rating services now yeah yeah uh, national media is very very polarized yeah yeah totally that new york times analysis of tucker carlson where you know that that show uses by the way though i don't think that cnn is as far left of center as fox is right of center like cnn is much closer to the center than fox is i mean i don't even really believe in the center but but I, I know what you're the saying. The American Center. Yeah, I, I well, I, but I know what you're saying. Yeah, Carlson, where you know that that show uses, I guess, minute by minute ratings, so he can tell if I use these words, faith, family, Reagan. You know, it's gonna, I'm gonna get a, a bump here, or they hate you and they want to do this. You know, kind of conspiratorial mindset. Again, the ratings again, you're friends with Brett Weinstein. Up. Yeah, it, it, I mean, the, these are market actors. Uh, and so both media companies and social media companies benefit from our polarization, from our anger, from our fear. If I put out very sedate, thoughtful news, no one watches it, you know? And so I go out of business or I get with a program and start launching uh, rhetorical uh, attacks. Um, and, and so this is, and you, you know, you read my book. So th- this is the major point I'm making in forward is that, look, this polarization is driven by incentives and the incentives are very powerful and they're going to get more powerful over time, not less powerful. Um, there are there are very few ways out of this mess. Um, the the way that I've proposed and I'm now championing uh, with your help now, which I'm super grateful for, is uh, it, it starts with an independent political movement uh, that can say, look, 
57, 58% of us are somewhere in, in the middle. So let's try and break free of this stuff. Um, and then the next step will be a media company. What does that, that mean? It's the same folks. 58% uh, of us are somewhere in the middle. That's like why I don't like the idea of the center is like you, like, what does it even mean? Does it mean like, usually it just means that I think I'm better than everyone else. Like when somebody calls themselves a centrist, <laughs> like uh, I'm like way more trustworthy of people who call themselves like, I'm like, Oh, I'm conservative, but I'm a moderate or I'm liberal, but I'm like more moderate. I believe that person. I don't believe the person that's like, I'm right down the center. It's like, shut up, shut up, <laughs> shut up. And <clears throat> we're about an hour and a half in. So this is as good a place to stop. This is anywhere. Um, I thought I was going to have more uh, disagreements with Yang uh, than I did. Yeah. <clears throat> I, think I think I, I agree with like, I think he's found a lot of real problems. Like he's talking about real problems and that makes me happy. But, and he, and he knows so like he's he's talking about real problems and he knows what a solution looks like he knows like this is how it would look if this problem were solved but to get from this problem exists to this is how it would look if this problem was solved to get in between those two he's got ideas and those ideas are fucking garbage generally yeah yeah it's like um it's like a, it's almost like a, like a doctor who can diagnose you, but can't, can't actually treat you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he can diagnose you and he could say, you know, if you didn't have that problem, you'd look like this. Right. But has okay, no cool. Can you help me not have that problem? Uh, I don't know. Take what I got in my pocket here. Take these pills. Maybe so, that'll help. Sorry. I'm, I'm actually Dr. Oz. So no, I can't help you with anything. <laughs> also, also. Oh shit. I got ratioed again. Um, <laughs> so <clears throat> one of the other things that about Yang is that like in this one, um, he hasn't, and I don't know if they were going to talk about it at the end. I don't think we're going to watch the rest of this during the post game. Cause this, uh, I'd rather watch something else, but he's been on, um, shows where people asked like about, um, far right figures kind of aligning with him. And he says, you know, if far right people want to be part of my coalition, then that's fine. But then they never discuss like, what are they talking about with far right? Cause for a while, the people, uh, the groiper community, uh, the Nick Fuentes kind of people, they're like young and racist. They were like real big into Yang and he like never told them to fuck off. And, mm -hmm. um, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I thought that was he wasn't going to lose mainstream support by telling Nick Fuentes to, and his people to fuck off. Right. Yeah. But he chose not to do it. And I was like, well, that's a real bad move. You know, get like in his comments, like during the, the primaries in 2020, like on Twitter, there were a lot of like men's rights activist people in there. A lot of like, a lot of like just, you know, like when somebody has like a picture of a statue uh, of a, uh, of like a famous philosopher as their profile pick on Twitter, it's like 60, 40, that person's hella racist. <laughs> he had a lot of those <laughs> pictures in his replies, like replying in the affirmative. And he just never sort of, he never in the 2020 campaign, I didn't really hear him disavow uh, racism, except for when he talked about times when people were racist to him. Like he was never like really anti-racist. And um, I think that was to his detriment. And, um, I don't think there's, I don't think what he's doing here is all that serious. I don't think there's like a serious political movement happening here. I don't think there's a, um, there's anything real going on here. 
And um, you don't think he's actually trying to do what he's saying. He he may that he's think, trying to do. He may think he's trying to do what he's saying, but um, you know, we don't. You know, I just don't think that it's serious, and I think that um, he's trying to do it from the top down instead of like trying to build a grassroots movement around what he's doing. And I think he's ultimately going to fail. Um, before I read the show out, we don't usually do this live on the show, but uh, 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 podcast listeners, you'll have to indulge me. Time for Tinfoil just rated us with a hundred fucking goats. So um, if you're not uh, Twitch, if you're not a Twitch user and you're listening to the podcast, real quick, a raid is just when uh, our friend Time for Tinfoil ended his show and uh, sent us all of his viewers. And so um, I just wanted to thank Time for Tinfoil and you know, kind of go on the record on our most popular podcast that uh, Time for Tinfoil has been a good friend of our network. And if you are interested in Twitch, don't just follow us. Make sure you follow other creators, uh, and especially Time for Tinfoil. And uh, it's time for me to read the show out. Everybody, live viewers, stay put. We're not going anywhere. We just have to end the podcast because people on Apple Podcasts don't want to listen to us talk for two hours. An hour 30 is kind of pushing it. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening to the podcast version of this. If you want to join our Patreon, that's patreon.com slash echoplex. And we're moving to a new studio. Go to echoplexmedia.com slash support. There's ways to give us money there. There are also ways to buy us items that we need for the new studio. Thanks to uh, our friend Drake for sending us some lighting. We really appreciate that. And this has been an episode of a show. I don't know if it was good or it was bad, but um, leave your one-star <laughs> review on iTunes, and we'll be back with the post game. Uh, this is Boomers by Periscope. Last night's Local Love was an interview with Matt Harrison, the lead guitarist and songwriter and the man with the plan over there at Periscope. So check out Local Love. That interview that Media Wench did with him was fantastic. And check out Periscope. Their music's great. Uh, this is Boomers, and we'll be back in a few minutes. Um, the content of my beverage will change and the color of the lights in both of our rooms, I believe will be changing.
can't get enough Echoplex and want to keep the conversation going with the hosts and community when we're not live, then join our Discord server at discord.me slash Echoplex. We have text channels, voice channels, meme repositories, and a whole section of screenshots that we don't even remember where they came from. Come join the Now Space on Discord at discord.me slash Echoplex.